The scripture this morning is from Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I bring you greetings because I promised them I would. Uh, from Ebenezer Church in Namatala, Uganda, where I preached last Sunday, uh, to about 45 people, um, but a very raucous 45 people. You, uh, Africans tend to be a little more uh, energetic, let's make that word fit, maybe, uh, than Americans. So I do bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters halfway across the world, uh, and, and it is great to be home, so thank you for praying for us. Uh, we are in a series on the parables of Jesus out of the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus has much to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, and the way he does it is to tell, tell stories like these. Now, in particular, the last three weeks, we, in, including this week, we've looked at three parables out of Matthew 21 and 22, and the themes, the, the, the thematic elements of these parables are going to seem very, very similar, and that is because uh, Jesus has grouped, or actually Matthew, in editing some of Jesus' material, has grouped these three parables together to explain kind of why things are happening in his ministry the way they are. And here is how it has been going. Uh, around Jesus, the, the message of the gospel has been received by the social outcasts and moral failures. And at the same time, it seems to be being rejected by the spiritual and social elites. Now, this was the offense of Jesus' ministry to many, that prostitutes and tax collectors seem to be given preference over religious leaders and temple authorities. In other words, if we could say it this way, the people who seem to be the least likely candidates to be a part of any religious movement were at the heart of Jesus' life and ministry. And at the same time, everyone who would be considered, quote-unquote, God's favorites were on the outside looking in. They are the ones, ultimately, who put him to death. And so Jesus tells these parables to describe the situation. And in this parable, we're told of a royal wedding. But what is unique about this royal wedding is that the political dignitaries and the nobles and the members of the court are replaced by peasants and prostitutes and all the other unmentionables. And this is what is confusing and even offensive, that there's something about the kingdom of God 
that it appeals to and includes the kinds of people that are normally left out and excludes the all-stars and the most qualified, and that is because it is a kingdom of grace. That's ultimately what Jesus is trying to teach us. That the things that usually get you ahead in life, things like hard work and self-sufficiency and education and achievement and a good reputation and affluence and good morals, those aren't bad things. They're good things. But those things don't get you ahead in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, they make it harder for you to enter. And this is so upside down because we don't yet understand how grace works. That grace includes the least deserving and excludes the most deserving. And that's so contrary to our normal experience, which is why Jesus gives us these parables. To teach us exactly how the kingdom of heaven works. And I'm glad he does. And I hope you are too, because we need him to teach us. And so this morning we're going to look at three things from this passage. We want to see the wedding feast, and then the wedding guests, and then the wedding garments. I tried to come up with a G for the feast, but I couldn't. To get it all there on the same, you know, with the same letters. So we're just going to stick with that. The wedding feast. And then the wedding guests. And then the wedding garments. And just work our way through this passage. Looking at what Jesus wants to teach us about. The reality of grace. Being at the center of the way the kingdom of heaven works. So let's start with just this. That the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a wedding feast. It may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now I think there are a couple things there that he means to teach us. The first is this. That... The kingdom of heaven is something to be celebrated. I mean, if you've ever been to a really great wedding, right? And you know how much fun it is. And when I say really great wedding, I mean uh, I mean lots of good food and lots of wine and lots of dancing. That kind of wedding. Right? Amen. Thank you. I got an amen. That's cool. Right? A great wedding where there's just a celebration of the love between this man and this woman. And everybody is swept up into it. And it's this magical night and something just powerful happens to the people who are there that kind of event now imagine in jesus's day wedding feasts could last as long as two weeks these people knew how to have a good time let's just go ahead right two weeks uh you know i man we about broke us to do four hours i can't imagine two weeks of dancing and feasting and celebrating and so jesus means to teach us that There is something about the kingdom of heaven that it is to be celebrated. The analogy is meant to create an anticipation of joy and celebration, okay? But secondly, there's also a little bit here about what we are to celebrate. Revelation 19.7, which we read as a call to worship, says, Rejoice and exult, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has been made, made herself ready. Now, this is the day there in Revelation 19 where Jesus will finally and fully redeem us and take us for his bride. To live with us and love us. And this is a very thorough biblical idea, right? For example, Ezekiel 16. The prophet says that God is to his people like a husband. And that he's wed himself to us and taken us as his bride. The book of Hosea, for example, in the Old Testament. Talks about the metaphor of God being a husband in relationship with his people. He's not just our creator and our maker. He's our husband. And so, men, you've got to stick this out with me a little bit this morning, okay? Because some of this is admittedly lost on us because of our cultural situation. And by that I mean a husband's not necessarily a desirable thing these days. Right? Most women think and believe they can get along just fine without a husband. In fact, I read a statistic this week that was just a, you know, amazing to me. That for the first time in American history, there are more women working jobs than men in America. And so some of this, some of this might be lost on us, but for a woman in Jesus' day to have a husband to provide for her and protect her and to care for her was everything. 
And there's a reason in the Bible when you see the Bible talks a lot about widows and orphans. And the reason is, is for a woman to lose her husband or for a family to lose the man of the family meant the devastation of the family. I think we ought to pay attention to that. The husband and the father was the provider, the protector, the caretaker. And so a marriage for a woman in Jesus' day was not just about the romantic stuff, right? The white dress and the flowers and all, all this narcissistic junk that we have made you know, it to be sometimes. It's not about that. It was an absolute necessity. It was this lady's whole life. It was her future. It was her everything. And what the scripture's teaching is that Jesus has claimed us as his bride. And he's gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And he promises that he will go and prepare a place. And when he's finished, he'll come again to take us to be where he is. That's John 14, which we read just last week in community Bible reading. And that language in John 14 is marriage language. That once the bridegroom had proposed to his bride, he would go back to his father's house and begin to prepare a home for the couple to live in, usually in addition to the, to the house of his father. And then once it was finished, he would parade into the bride's village and take her back to his own village, and the wedding would start. And that's what Jesus has promised us, that he is coming again. And when he comes, he's coming to finally and fully redeem us as his people and to wed himself to us and to unite with us uh, in intimacy and love and joy. And that's what the Bible promises. And, and the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, which you ought to read to your kids someday, puts it this way about this day when Jesus comes to fulfill all that's being promised here, that there will be no more running away or hiding, no more crying or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they are all gone forever. Think of, think of this. Everything sad has come untrue. And God will wipe away every tear from every eye. See that? That's why we can say that the kingdom of heaven is something to be celebrated. That that description right there, that everything sad will come untrue, it just reaches down to the inner parts of your heart and touches something there. That we all want that. We all know we've been made for that. And so there's a wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven is something to be celebrated. It's like a wedding feast. That's the first point. But who comes in and who joins the celebration? You see, the parable is also meant to teach us there are certain people who refuse to join the celebration, and there are some who come. And so let's look at the guest list then. See, because the first thing you do if you're going to have a wedding is you put together a guest list, right? The bride and the groom, usually with their moms, sit down, begin to write out names of people that need to be invited, all the people that were important to each of them, their family, their friends, the people who have been a part of the story of their lives. And what Jesus wants us to see here is that God has a guest list too, he mentions the servants, verse 3, were sent and called to all of those who were invited to the feast. So see, there's already a, a list of people that have been invited. God has prepared this people for the celebration. He's spoken with them. He's sent notice to them. I mean, these are the people the scriptures uh, have been sent to. God has sent the prophets to his people for centuries to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. And yet here he is, the time has come the wedding has begun and they refuse to come. These are, if you follow contextually with what Jesus has been teaching about in these three parables in 21, Matthew 21 and 22, these are the religious leaders and the temple authorities. They are the spiritual leaders of Israel, his people, the people to whom he has written, the people whom he has sent invitations to, the people to whom the prophets have come to ready them for this very day. And yet, uh, they do not come. From every outward appearance, they had sent in their RSVP. They were waiting and watching 
And yet, when Jesus came and the feast began, they did not come. But why did they not come? See, that's the question. Why did they not come? How does Jesus put it here? Verse 5. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You see, they were indifferent. They were too busy. They had better things to do. They thought that what they had was better than what they were being offered. It wasn't, you know, the, the news that came of the wedding wasn't good news to them. They were just indifferent. But what we see there, verse 5, is underneath their indifference. Look look a little bit deeper, and underneath their indifference, you'll see there's a hostility. We're told some just went away and kind of got about their business, but that there are others who took the servants and seized them and killed them. And so there's a hostility there. They'd already accepted the invitation to the wedding. They'd sent in their RSVP. They'd said, I'm coming. But when the time came, they didn't come. And what Jesus is teaching us is you can be the kind of person who, on the outside, or whatever the rhythm of your life might be, you're saying, I'm coming. You may have been baptized. You may go to church. You may do religious stuff. But on the inside, there's no feasting. There's no delighting. There's no celebrating. There's no coming. The good news isn't good news. It doesn't set your affections ablaze. You're indifferent. But the indifference is really something other than indifference. It's hostility. Now, what's, what's Jesus trying to say? See, the people in the story who refused the invitation... The religious leaders and the temple authorities, it's those people that these these three parables are directed at here that we've been looking at. People who are very moral and committed and they believe that their good works are what save them. They, They are like the older brother. Remember we talked about this in the story of the prodigal son, the one who didn't run off like his younger brother did, but he stayed home and he did what was right and he... Uh, did his chores and he was obedient and dutiful, but he became proud and self-righteous and something began to happen in his heart that wasn't good. And these people, these people believe in a performance-based religion. They believe that you do good deeds and by those those good deeds that you do, you earn God's love and acceptance. You obey the law, you keep the rules, you be good because God loves good people. What Jesus is saying, what he's daring to say, is that you can be good and moral and religious and committed. (laughs) and you can do all those things for selfish reasons. You can do it as a way not to serve God, but to have him serve you. In other words, you can do good. You know, my strategy can mean I'm going to do good, I'm going to follow the rules, and if I do that, then God owes me. God's got to give me something. And in that sense, morality and religion are just a form of rebellion against God, just like immorality is. Now, these people... That Jesus is speaking to you were very religious, but underneath their religion, there was hostility. They wouldn't come to the wedding. They weren't embracing Jesus's ministry, right? They opposed him. They tried to kill him. There's hostility. But where's the hostility come from? And if you put the three parables together, this one and last week and the week before, you get an answer that, that kind of threads its way throughout. And the answer is just this. They hate. They hate the implications of salvation by grace. They hate the implications of salvation by grace. God doesn't love good people. He loves good people and bad people. He loves all people. God doesn't just bless the righteous. He blesses the righteous and the wicked. And religious people hate that because it doesn't affirm their basic assumptions and idolatries. I'm good. That's why God loves me. No, God loves you. God loves good people and bad people. And it just drives religious people crazy. They they hate the implications of salvation by grace. And here's what I mean by that. Look down. At the very bottom of the passage to the summary statement in verse 14. And Jesus ends the parable with just this little kind of cryptic phrase. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
You see, religion easily becomes something to take pride in. I've been good. I'm righteous. I've obeyed God. But Jesus is saying it's not being good that makes you a Christian. It's not going to church. It's not your obedience, your faith, even your choice. It's God's choice of you that really matters. It's not that you know him. It's that he knows you. That's Jesus' way of saying there's nothing in you that's merited the love and the acceptance of God. If he loves you, it's not because you're better or more committed than anyone else. He loves you because he loves you. And from the fount before, before the foundations of the world were laid, he chose you in Christ Jesus. Amen? I mean, that's, that's the truth of the gospel. I mean, there's an old hymn, and I, I couldn't find the hymn writer, but the hymn says this, and I think this is put beautifully. It's, it says, Lord, tis not that I did choose thee, that I know could never be, for this heart would still refuse thee. Had thy grace not chosen me. Thou hast from the sin that stained me. Washed and cleansed and set me free. And unto this end ordained me. That I ever lived to thee. T'was thy grace in Christ that called me. Taught my darkened heart and mind. Else the world had yet enthralled me. To thy heavenly glories blind. Now my heart owns none above thee. For thy grace alone I thirst. Knowing well. That if I love thee. Thou O Lord didst love me first. See, salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is something God does, not something we do. And it comes to us because of the sovereign good pleasure of God. It takes away, all pride is stripped away. Many are called, he says, but if, God is, but, if, but if when you call, you come. When you're called, you come. It's because there's a work of grace going on in your heart that is moving your feet and your hands and your mouth to confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a work of God's grace that's behind any obedience that we might muster in ourselves. And that's why the religious leaders hate this. That if we do nothing to save ourselves, if salvation is a work that is completely God's doing, then here's what this means. And I I hope you can see this. If that's true, then we have no bargaining chips. (laughs) If salvation is by grace and not works, then God owns us. We don't own him. He can demand whatever he wants to of us. We can demand nothing of him. That's the posture grace puts you in, and our natural hearts hate it. We hate the idea that we're sinners saved by grace. It offends our natural pride. We want to be the one that does the work. We want to do the good works so that on the other end of the good works, we can bargain with God to get what we really want from him. And and here's where religion gets unmasked. In the final analysis, religion is just a way to play God. It's a way to keep control of our lives. It's just another strategy for avoiding Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus wants us to see that if, As we've looked at these three parables in Matthew 21 and 22, if you find that you're like the religious leaders, if you're still if you're still operating in a works righteousness system, Jesus is warning you. Heed the warning. He's saying it will make you indifferent to the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ crucified won't sound like good news. There'll be no joy, no feasting, no celebrating in your life. In your life, you'll miss the party. And so let's go just a little bit further with this thought. And talk, finish by talking about the wedding garment and what Jesus has to say about that here. And what Jesus wants us to see is that only when you come to really believe in the gospel, only when you embrace the truth that salvation is by grace alone, that we do nothing and God does everything, only then is it that God's work in your life begins to explode and you begin to experience the joy in the feasting of the kingdom of heaven. So let's say it this way. Now, the only way you get in is if he clothes you. I mean, that's what this parable is ultimately teaching us. The only way to get into the party that Jesus has set 
as if he clothes you. You see, after the servants, maybe I did that, I don't know. After the servants are sent out the first time and no one comes, the king sends out uh, the servants a second time. Do you see this? To the main roads, we're told. Let's look and find that. Um, verse 8. <clears throat> go to the, go, verse 9. Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now, now every commentator I read talks about these main roads. This word means... Uh, the crossroads leading out of the big city into the country. It was kind of the major intersections that would, would lead from the city to the country. And it was a place where a lot of the poor and the needy would congregate, where the kinds of people who have never, would never expect to be invited to a royal feast uh, would be. And, and he tells them to go and invite as many people as they could find. And then look carefully, verse 10. This is the really important little phrase that you can't miss here. We're told there in verse 10 that when they go, both the good and the bad come. So at the end of the day, both the good and the bad are invited to the wedding feast. And that's important. Jesus obviously puts it there on purpose because, because the Pharisees and the religious leaders believe that only the good people make it to heaven. Only good people make it to heaven. But Jesus says else otherwise. Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, there are both good people and bad people. <laughs> and that's because your past performance, your spiritual resume makes absolutely no difference. Your spiritual achievements... Or failures are completely irrelevant. The difference between a Christian and somebody who wouldn't call themselves a Christian is not that Christians are good and everybody else is bad. No, 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 no. Both good and bad people are invited. And what matters then is whether or not God clothes you. And that's what he means to teach us by the wedding garment. You see, as the story goes on, the king himself comes into the feast. You notice that there in verse 11? And he notices that one of the guests was there and not wearing a wedding garment. Now, this wedding garment would have been something like this, like a special set of clothes that were set aside for special occasions, like a wedding feast. Everybody would have had uh, this, this special set of clothes that whenever something really big like this happened, they would go home, probably bathe, you know, some of them for the first time in many days, get this really, you know, their nice fancy clothes on, and then go as a, as a sign of respect for, uh, you know, the, what was being celebrated. Now, you would get all dressed up, basically. Now, here's why this is significant. The servants, if you notice, were told, went out into the streets to invite the people. And then, they, and then we're told, the people that they invite immediately come into the feast. So, a couple of things. They probably wouldn't have had time to go home to get dressed. And probably many of the people who were invited were poor and would not have owned proper wedding garments. Now, the reason that's important is just this. It means... That the king must have provided these wedding garments at his own expense. The king must have had the garments ready at the door for all those who walked in so they could be dressed properly. That's the only explanation for how Jesus puts this in this passage. So here's what it's teaching. On the one hand, you can't earn your way to heaven. You need to be clothed. The prophet Isaiah says that even our best moral efforts and even our greatest moral accomplishments, if you remember this, are so stained by selfish motivations. They're like filthy rags, he says. They're unsuitable. You can't earn your way. You need to be clothed. But on the other hand, don't think the opposite, okay? But you can't just come as you are either. You need to be clothed. You see, conservative religious people tend to think it's your good deeds, it's your good works that get you God's acceptance and love. You do that by being good. Jesus says, no, that's not true. But neither is the typical liberal idea either. Liberals typically say things like, uh, God just loves everybody as they are. It's his job. They've, liberal, liberal, liberal theology 
and even liberal social policies tend to kind of water things down to where uh, there's no call to obedience. You don't have to do anything. God loves you without condition. It's just, it's just, it's just that's what he's got to do. It's his job to do that. And neither of them is true, Jesus says. You can't earn your way, and you can't come just as you are. You have to be clothed. Now, if you remember all the way back, the beginning of the Bible, there was a time when Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, are walking in the garden, and they realize their nakedness because they've sinned and were told they're shamed. And do you remember what they do? Well, first they hid, right? But immediately as soon as they hid, do you remember what the Bible tells us that they do? They take fig leaves, and they begin to sew fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness, but it doesn't work. And it's a metaphor, it's a picture for what all of us are doing uh, in different ways in our lives. We're all trying to find ways of clothing ourselves against standing naked for God in need of grace to try to find a covering for ourselves. I'm going to be a good mom, or I'm going to be, I'm going to be a, a, you know, have a good business, or I'm going to be a nice person, or I'm going to be a church person, or whatever strategy we may, we may come up with. We all are trying to clothe ourselves with garments of our own making. We're putting fig leaves and sewing them together and trying to cover up our nakedness, but it doesn't work. And if you remember how the story goes on in Genesis 2, God comes and he confronts Adam and Eve, and then we're told, almost as an aside, it's amazing, verse 21, Genesis 2, 21, we're told almost as an aside that he made garments of skin and clothed them in their nakedness. Garments of skin. Now, don't miss that. I mean, where did the skin come from? I mean, where did they get, gar- you know, it's one thing to try to clothe yourself with fig leaves, which I can't even, you know, possibly, you know, figure out how that works, but garments of skin. Now, where do the garments of skin come from? And nearly all the commentators and scholars agree that there must have been some sort of sacrifice, that the Lord himself must have taken some kind of animal and killed it and then used its skin to make clothes for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Wow. And I say wow because there's the gospel way back in Genesis. It's right there. You see that? Because what's the gospel? The gospel says you and I deserve... To die because of our sin, we are naked and ashamed before God and have no way of clothing ourselves. And yet Jesus has come and he's died in our place and he's lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And he's taken upon himself our record of of sin and disobedience and has given to us his record of perfect righteousness. He is the sacrifice that clothes us. His righteousness is the wedding garment that gains us access to the celebration. That's what's being, that's what we're learning here. And so if you think, if you think still, and this is just kind of the, the diagnostic that this, that this parable is trying to get at. If you think that you have to earn your way to heaven, if you're still caught, you know, you may believe the gospel on one level, but then there's another level where you're still kind of caught in this works-based righteousness. If you think that, it's, that you have to earn your way to heaven, then there'll be no joy in your life. But on the same side, you know, it's just if you believe that God just loves everybody, if it's on the other end, if you believe God loves everybody and you come to him as you are, you won't enjoy either because, you know, in that case, he may be a God of love, but it's cost him nothing to love. So you see, there's only one way that you can really experience the joy that Jesus is hinting at here. And that is to know you have nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that commends you to him, that you deserve his wrath and condemnation. You deserve the outer darkness that Jesus talks about the king throwing this man into in verse 13. You deserve the outer darkness, and yet he's clothed you. 
The gospel says that he's provided a righteousness for you and me that is ours by sheer grace, that we've done nothing to earn it. But we can't enter the feast without it. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. If you look back there at the assurance of pardon, Isaiah talks about the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness that God gives us that causes him to look at us and consider us beautiful just the way a groom looks at a bride and thinks she's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to us if we put our faith in him. Those are the garments of salvation. See, salvation isn't something, you know, it isn't something you work for. It isn't something you do on your own. It's God's work. Few, Many are called, but few are chosen. It's a, the work of the grace of God that comes into your life. So I want to finish very quickly this morning, just by offering a diagnostic and then suggesting a practice that I think uh, this passage leads us to, uh, as we, and even as we consider Thanksgiving. Now, first, a diagnostic. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher in London in the, in the 19th century, has a sermon on this passage, and he makes the point that if you're going to throw a feast, you always want beggars at your feast. <laughs> and the reason is just this. He says, and, and I can't possibly say it the way Charles Spurgeon says it, but something to this degree. He says, you know, if, if you're at a feast, the prim and proper ladies who attend the feast, you know, the food comes in and the, and the prim and proper ladies may raise their eyebrows and say, hmm, right? Or they may, they may complain about the food or the service, but the beggars, the beggars at the feast. If you're ever around beggars who are at a feast, the beggars are so amazed that they're even at the feast, they cheer for every dish, right? It's like, wow, look at the size of that. Did you see the turkey? Hooray for the turkey. I mean, can you, right? I mean, they're so excited every meal every dish that comes out they've cheered every plate they can't get over the fact i'm at a feast i've not had anything to eat and now there's more food than i've ever seen in my entire life and they just cheer at every single thing that comes out from the kitchen and 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 i think what spurgeon is getting at and what jesus is getting at here is that if there's no feasting in your life if you're not cheering at every dish it's because you don't see yourself as a beggar The reason we're not amazed at every good thing in our life, the reason we're not cheering at every plate is because we think we deserve what we have. Or worse, we deserve better. See, what that teaches us is that it's not our sins that keep us from the joy of the kingdom of heaven. It's our righteousness. It's not our sins that keep us from God. It's the things that make make us think we're good enough, that dull us to the good news of the gospel, that make it no good news at all. And if you believe in salvation... By grace, if you really believe that you deserve outer darkness, but God has given you life and breath, and I just started to do a mental list, right? And a job that pays you money, uh, that, that allows you to buy the things you need, and kids that are healthy and friends that love you, and a house that doesn't have a dirt floor, like the ones that I was in in Africa, and a car that will get you where you need to go. And just let the list flow on and on and on and on, that all of these things are God's gracious gifts, and you deserve none of them. When you recognize that, there will be feasting. You'll be cheering for every plate. (laughs) There'll be an overriding and pervasive joy in your life. And that joy is the fruit of the spirit, the Bible says. It is a distinguishing mark of a true believer in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is something to be celebrated. So are you rejoicing? Do you celebrate every dish? Do you grumble and complain? See, that's the diagnostic. That's how you can get underneath. If you're wondering where you are, if you're wondering if you're like the religious leaders and and the authorities, who Jesus is going after in these parables. Here's how you know. Are you, are you celebrating? Are you cheering at every dish? That's the diagnostic. But then secondly, a practice. And I just want to say what a great opportunity we have to cultivate this this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving. So can I make three suggestions? First, uh, worship. Worship. Uh, you can celebrate family at Thanksgiving. You can celebrate a day off. 
You can celebrate turkey and mashed potatoes. But I want to encourage you to make a conscious effort to direct your attention to God and celebrate Him. Uh, Pray longer prayers before you eat. If you don't know how to do that, invite Jonathan over. He'd be glad to oblige you. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't pass that up. Sorry. That's good. He can disciple you in how to do that if you'd like for him to. My wife can too as well. I make fun of her too. Pray long prayers. Pray long prayers. Linger, right? Take time to reflect on all of the ways that he's been good to you and make sure you say thank you. Come. I would encourage you. I'm, I'm actually going to be preaching at, at Trinity at 10. Not preaching. It's a 40-minute service, and I've got like five minutes. So pray for me because that's like hard for a pastor. Come and be with us at 10 o'clock and worship with us. Uh, I know it's a 30-minute drive. It's worth it. It's a great service, but worship. Secondly, serve. Just second suggestion, serve. Gratitude always leads to service. And there are ministries in the city that are handing out turkeys or feeding the homeless. Take time to show your gratitude by serving somebody else. Go and plug in with one of those ministries. Kids, kids, pay attention. Clear the table after Thanksgiving dinner. Don't make your mom do it. Moms, amen, right? Serve, serve. Guys, the football game will be there. Help, serve. Show gratitude by serving other people. And then thirdly, so worship, serve, feast. Feast. Make sure it's a celebration. Smile, right? (laughs) Laugh. Linger at the table. Cheer for every plate. Remember, you're a beggar, right? You're a beggar. The gospel teaches you you're a beggar. And so ask God to give you great joy in him. That he has been so good. Uh, So worship, serve, and feast. Are you rejoicing? You celebrate every dish. That's what Jesus wants us to consider. So let's do that as we pray together. Can we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that you love us enough to not allow us to continue on in our indifference. That you love us enough to help us diagnose our own hearts that that the indifference that we find in ourselves so many times is not harmless, but that underneath it is a hostility, a deep, deep hostility to where we just hate the implications of grace, that there's a part of our hearts, our sin nature, that is constantly trying to drag us back under the law that we can prove ourselves and do the work for ourselves. And, and because we ultimately believe that, that you only love us if we're good and if we perform well. And Jesus, would you dispel that lie? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you lead and guide us into all truth? Uh, that the truth of the gospel of grace could come into our hearts, that we could see ourselves as beggars and then begin to cheer at every plate. Oh, I so long for that in my own life. Would you come and do that work? Uh, as we sing this song now, would, would help us to consider the implications of what we sing, that we are those who on the great day when we come before you will fall down and we will lay our crowns at your feet, acknowledging that every good deed that we might have accomplished in this world that that might possibly be rewarded was only the work of your spirit and your grace in our lives we have nothing to commend us to you Uh, naked we come for dress helpless we come and look uh, for grace thank you lord jesus that you promise that those who would come with nothing that you promise to give them everything and so help us to embrace our nothingness 
that we might receive from you everything, and then that we might go and do anything you would ask of us, that your name might be glorified, that people might come to know you, that you might be made famous, that you might be seen to be glorious. That's my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What a joy uh, to be worshiping with you this morning. Please, if you have a chance, come to Lakeland on on Thursday and and worship with us. I also wanted to let you know, because it's going to sneak up on you, uh, I know the temptation to uh, take next Sunday off is huge after Thanksgiving. It is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, and I love that time of year. This place will be decorated. We'll be doing the Christmas stuff and kind of headed towards Christmas starting next Sunday. So please don't miss uh, the opportunity to come and worship with us. I pray for all of you that you have a fantastic Thanksgiving this week, and I do hope that uh, there's, feast- there's feasting and rejoicing over every plate. And so receive the word of the benediction then, uh, that for those who can dare to call themselves beggars, uh, the promise is that God will richly bless you in Christ Jesus uh, with more than you could possibly imagine. So receive the promise of that blessing, uh, even as we go to celebrate it this week in the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.